Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole biblical story about God and Israel. He is the Messiah from the line of David. Matthew shows us that Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. Matthew tells us Jesus is going to bring God's blessing to all the nations, just like Moses did. Jesus' kingdom is about God's rescue operation for the whole world. It's an upside-down kingdom where there are no privileged members. Everyone is invited. Everyone is called to turn, to repent, to follow Jesus, and to join his family. Matthew is about the people who are unimportant, the nobodies, the irreligious. These are the people who are transformed by their willingness to trust, to have faith in Jesus Christ. Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here at First Christian Church, both here in the West Auditorium and also those who are in the East Auditorium. Thanks for joining us here at worship. Uh, for the guests, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and I'm very glad you're with us today. We're going to read uh, today from the book of Matthew. If you'll grab a Bible, it's this far through the book, okay, about three-quarters of the way through. Maybe you have it on your smartphone, Matthew chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible that you can call your own, here in the West, grab one of the pew racks there and take it home as our gift to you. In the East, there's some people moving around the room right now. I'd be glad to give you one. And uh, we'd, we'd be honored if you'd take that home as our gift to you today. While you're looking for Matthew 12, I'd like to um, start by telling you of what happened uh, to me when I was 11 years old. Um, many of you know that our family with long history, generations of an Australian heritage, we immigrated to Vancouver, Canada. And you can imagine that that sort of shift was quite dramatic for, you know, that was kind of life-changing for me. And uh, there were things that we saw in Canada that I hadn't seen before. Like, for example, um, I remember a couple months after we arrived, kid playing out in the yard with some kids, you know, and one of them found a little garter snake and he's swinging it around by the tail. And I, I ran for my life because in Australia you're told you don't play with snakes because most of them are extremely poisonous. They'll kill you and you would never want to figure out which one is poisonous versus which one is not. So as a little boy you're just told you see a snake, you run for your life. So I'm terrified of snakes as a little boy. Even now I don't like the idea of them. And, um, and um, we once found a copperhead in our, lawn, in our yard in, in, in Oklahoma, and I hit that thing with a shovel, and my, oh my. Anyway, so this kid's swinging this thing around like that, and I'm terrified. Well, let me just tell you about the kind of snakes that we had and that are still there in Australia. For example, the eastern brown snake, number two venom in the world. It, when, when, when the eastern brown snake catches you, and if it bites you, you, you won't have to worry about calling out for help because you can't. You're paralyzed. And then you actually bleed out to death because from where the bite is, your blood will no longer clot. And so you just bleed until you just lay there like that. It's a lovely way to die. It's a lovely way to die. Or, or here's another idea. Um, there's another snake in Australia called the um, Inland Taipan. It's the number one venom in the world also on the eastern coast of Australia. And um, it, it, um, it has so much venom that when it kills a rat for food, 
poor rat. I never thought I'd say that about a rat. I'm not particularly fond of rats either, but nonetheless, if a rat, it will inject that rat with 40,000 times more potent venom than is needed to actually kill the rat. Again, not a nice way to um, meet your fate. Um, and I want you to notice that where all those snakes are found, on the east coast of Australia, right? I grew up in a little town called Katoomba. This is where Katoomba is in the midst of all of that. Here's the map. We didn't play with snakes. We were not, as a church, we were never into snake handling or anything like that because they're going to kill you. As a matter of fact, I want you to see a photo that has taken about a mile and a half from the home where I grew up. That's the gorge that is longer, older, wider, deeper, everything as compared to the Grand Canyon. It's a rainforest. There are 5,000 species of animals and plants yet to be identified in that gorge. And um, that was literally, we would walk to that cliff um, from our house on a regular basis. And uh, so there are lots and lots of reasons to be afraid of snakes. Some of you are going, Wayne, it's so lovely to come to church. And be lifted up. And what are we going to learn? We're going to about death and danger and snakes to boot. What's with that? I was hoping I was going to step into something that would be really uplifting. Well, I need to tell you, the passage of scripture we're reading today is about death and danger and snakes. And so I ha- it was legitimate that we start there. And uh, you'll have to, um, well, just be mindful that the passage we're reading is pretty strong, pretty almost gloomy. So bear with me today, and we'll see what we can learn of it, because we are carrying on with our work and our review of the book of Matthew. We started back in February. We won't finish till um, into September. And so when you open up and go, this is the next passage, we've got to figure out what it means. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 22, Jesus' ministry is established by this time. Wherever he goes, there seems to be healing and um, preaching, and sometimes even demon exorcism. Satan is cast out of people, and demons are cast out of people, and that's the case today. Verse 22, they brought to Jesus a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so he could both talk and see. So something supernatural has occurred in this guy's life, both to get the demon and now to get it out. Jesus heals him, casts out the demon, and all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? That's a legitimate response to the miracles that are taking place. Wherever he goes, people are made well, and where does that power come from? You know, if a person came to our town and could touch people, and suddenly there were fewer people, fewer people in the hospitals, and people were getting healed, don't you think that would create a bit of a stir? People would want to know, how is this happening? What's the source of that sort of power? And they're asking that. Is, is this guy from God, or... The religious leaders who are going to be introduced next, that we're going to meet them next, they're not so certain. They want to know, is this business of being able to cast out demons, is that from God or is it Satan himself? And Jesus is going to acknowledge their, their question, but then he's going to provide them with an answer that's a bit of a surprise to them. He's going to give them some statements that say, basically, the way in which you're viewing this, your logic is all wrong. So... Here we have verse 23, all the people are astonished. Could this be the son of David? And when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. It's only by Beelzebul. What's that all about? Well, this passage right here, Matthew 12, 24, Beelzebul, is about Satan. 
This description of Satan, Beelzebul, is best described and best translated as the Lord of the flies of the dung pile. Now, in fact, the language could be sharper in a, real tr- in a straight up translation. That dung could be sharper, more graphic, downright offensive in a worship setting. It's, it, who are we kidding? There's a pile of, and there are flies all around it. You don't want to go any, anywhere near it. And Beelzebul, this name that's attributed to Satan in this case, is that he is the Lord of the flies. He's in charge of that aroma and that mess right there. Okay? Without being more graphic, do you understand what I mean? You're probably aware of, the, of a novel called The Lord of the Flies. Maybe you had to read that in high school. 1954, William Golding. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a story of a bunch of pre-teenage boys who are on a plane from Great Britain. The plane goes down. They land in an, on an island where and the adults are all killed. They're left there as little boys alone. And they develop a horrendous code of ethics that eventually leads, and this is, again, death and danger and snakes, and this time, a little bit different, they end up cutting off the head of one of the boys and sticking it on a stick. It's lovely reading for a high schooler. Why did they make us read that in high school? I have no idea, but nonetheless, Lord of the Flies. Here's, here's, Golding has this place where he takes these young men, these young boys of upstanding scholarship and pretty high in the British, you know, lineage, if you will, they devolve into savagery and a primitive state. It's a horrific view of how a culture can go awry. And it's fascinating that it chooses the name, the Lord of the Flies, a direct reference to Satan's name here and to Satan's work. Satan's influence on a culture is never good news. And so as they're saying, hey, maybe it's Beelzebul, Jesus is saying, "Mm -mm, I'm not that guy. As a matter of fact, he's going to come back at them with some logic about what Satan would or wouldn't do and see if, he can, see if he can understand what he's saying here. Okay, so the Pharisees say it's only by Elzebel, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Then we get to verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, and he's going to give them some proverbs. Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. That's a proverb, right? Every kingdom divided against itself is in trouble. Every city or household divided against itself will not stand. There's another proverb. Verse 26, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Jesus is is presenting some proverbial logic. He's saying, think about what you've said, gentlemen, that I'm, I'm driving out Satan because I'm Satan. This doesn't make sense. Then there are some proverbs that go along this. If I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they'll be your judges. If it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So if, since it's probably not likely that Satan's going to cast out Satan, then this must be from God, and now that means the kingdom of God is upon you. How are you going to respond to that? Or here's another proverb. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder the house. There's no way that I would be able to do this with this guy's demon unless I was stronger than he was. And so he's, he's giving these proverbial, these proverbs, these life lessons. Logic, if you will. You're familiar with some proverbs, probably. They're not always um, 
Well, they're always fully instructional, but they're not necessarily commands. You don't have to do it. You don't have to do it this, this way. But here's some understandings is what Proverbs usually say. It's a, if you will, it's a life truth in a, in a proverb that formulates a worldview. Sort of an ah, ah, brain alert moment. Logical understandings of life based on experience. For example, uh, here, here's, here's a, an Italian proverb. Anger can be an expensive luxury. Well, yeah, you know that, that if you get angry and you break something, that anger causes you, it's going to cost something. And so you, there's a life truth there. It doesn't say you shouldn't get angry. It just says if, you, you know, anger can be an expense. It's, it's a truth, but it's not a command. Or here's another one. You'll never plow a field if you only turn it over in your mind. That's from Ireland. Well, that's true, right? Again, it doesn't say you have to plow a field. You have to do this, but if you have a project... And you just keep thinking about it, it never gets done. Here's one from Mexico. In a, clouds, in a closed mouth, flies do not enter. Hmm. So sometimes the best thing to do is just be silent. Close your mouth, don't yap, be quiet. And you know what? The flies might not show up. It's good news. From Spain, tomorrow is often the busiest day of the week. Well, hey, I, I'm, I, I've got... I need to meet with you. Can I meet with you tomorrow? Oh, no, tomorrow. Tomorrow, I've got so much on my plate. You know, and it's always all this stuff we have to do in front of us. Or here's one. Experience is a comb which nature gives us when we are bald. In other words, I really have figured out how to do things, but now by the time I've figured it out, I'm bald and I can't use it anyways. Okay, so it's like... Well, there are other ones that you, perhaps you're familiar with um, that are found in Scripture. David the psalmist asked this rhetorical question, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. There's, there's a truth, and here's the proverb. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's not a command, but it's something that I'm choosing to do. It's an observation of life. We have a whole collection of proverbs uh, in the Bible. In all in one book. Any idea what the book might be called? Proverbs. There was a sharp, sharp guy who put this together and said, oh, what are we going to call the book? Help me, help me, help me. Proverbs. It was written and collected together some thousand years or so before Jesus had his earthly ministry. Here's one that you may, again, it's not a command, but it's an observation. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding in all your ways submit to him, and he'll make your path straight. So there's a truth there. If you want to have straight paths, then back up into the proverb. Okay, trust God. Get, get, if you will, this observable worldview. If you trust God, if you seek his life approach, your life will be set in a clear direction. Now, again, it's not a command. The Bible doesn't say you have to trust God. It gives you the choice, but it shows you what happens if it comes along. And this is what Jesus is doing with the Pharisees. He's saying... You know, you can choose whatever you think, but your logic is unreasonable. If I was Beelzebul, if I was Satan, then it would be Satan casting out Satan. And since Satan wouldn't cast out Satan, I'm not casting out demons. And he's hoping that the Pharisees are going to go, Ah, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I get it. Since I'm not casting out demons, then I'm sure not Beelzebul. But then they're left with the question that we saw at, the verse, at verse 23. They still haven't figured that out. All the people were astonished, and they were, they were asking, 
Who is this guy? Could he be the son of David? Who is this guy? Every place he goes, miracles happen. And why do these miracles happen? And the Pharisees are blind to what's going on. It's like they've made a decision to um, just not pay attention. They're spiritual leaders. They're religious leaders in the, in the land. And you would think they'd be attuned to spiritual issues. But they're missing the mark. Clueless. Just not paying attention. I, I could explain it this way. Um, I want you to take a look at a photo here. It's a photo of a bunch of different sedans, Volvo sedans. Volvos are made in Sweden. They are all sedans that were made in 1970. So they're 47 years of age now. You wouldn't expect there, there are a lot of Volvos on the road these days, would you? I mean, there's kind of like 47-year-old car, and it's not like how many people have antique Volvos. That's not something you really, you know, pay attention to. But there is one place in the world where there are a lot of them that are still running from 1970, North Korea. About a thousand of them are still in operation there. Here's why. Back in 1970, a bunch of Swedish people got together and said, maybe we could help North Korea come out of the dark ages. Maybe we could make them understand a little bit more of the modern world, and we should enter into some sort of discussion with the North Koreans as Swedes, and for the rest of the world's sake, bring them into the modern world. And maybe one way we could do that is we could get into some economic agreements together. And one of the things they decided to do is, well, we could have the Volvo Corporation sell them a thousand brand new Volvo sedans. And um, the, the Swedish government said, okay, I'm, we're up for that. And um, what are we going to get in return? They said, well, we'll, we'll let the, the North Koreans pay us by providing us with copper and zinc from their fledgling mined industry. And the Swedish government said, that all sounds good. You send them off, you Volvo Corporation, you send them off, and if the North Koreans don't pay, we'll back the whole deal, and so we'll cover the cost. And so, what do you think happened? North Korea got the cars, and they didn't pay. They still haven't paid. 47 years later, there's still a bill outstanding. Now, here's the problem. That bill, when you take into account inflation and uh, the interest that's accruing, the Swedish government, every six months, sends a bill to North Korea and says, we'd like for you to pay for the Volvos that we sent to you in 1970. The bill now, though, is no longer at 1970 figures. It's now some 300 million euros or 400, uh, close to 400 million US dollars. Now, that's for a thousand cars. Now, if you can do some math very quickly, how much is each Volvo from 1970 now worth? You could sell one here for about $2,500 to $3,000 because it's a little bit of an antique, right? Maybe, maybe not. Those cars are now valued on the books of Sweden at $400,000 a piece. Wow. So, the North Koreans, though, get the bill every six months and they just disregard it. Don't pay attention to it. They're, it's like... We're not going to pay, and, and, and they won't listen. They're not paying attention. They're like the Pharisees in this matter, blind to the realities in front of them that 47 years ago, these cars were sent to you. You should pay for them. Not us. And this is what the Pharisees were doing. They're, they've got the work of God right in front of them, right there to see this guy that was blind and mute is now able to see and able to talk, 
The demon is out of him. It's right there in front of them. We don't see any work of God. There's no piece of paper. You know, it's like the North Koreans. We're not, it's not for us. Their hearts and minds were closed to God's work, even as it was right in front of them. Which, of course, begs a couple of questions. One would be, how do we respond when God's work is right in front of us? Do we ignore it, or are we willing to embrace it and say this is God's work? I want you to look at how Jesus responds to what's going on. This is why we start with so much death and danger and snakes, because he's going to start talking about snakes now and death and danger. Because Jesus calls these Pharisees in their unwillingness to pay attention. He calls them a brood of vipers. In other words, it's more than just making a mistake, but now you are poison. Read with me. Verse 30. Jesus says to the Pharisees who won't acknowledge that this is a work of God. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. This is weird, isn't it? Here he's talking about Satan and so forth and so on. He's saying this is the work of God. And he's saying you guys are blind to what's going on. And suddenly talks about this blasphemy of the Spirit. There's something that can't be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. You can speak against me as the Son of God, the Son of Man, you can be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. There's some sort of unpardonable sin. You won't be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. This is unpardonable, unforgivable, both now and eternally. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. So what kind of fruit do you guys have coming out of your lives? Well, here's where he goes. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You've been denying the work of God. You've been denying that I'm the Son of God. And as you deny it and as those words come out of you, then your, your words are portraying, or, or if you will, your words are letting us all see who you are. Jesus considers the snakes po- these Pharisees poison them. He calls them a brood of vipers, if you will, snakes more deadly than the ones in Australia. The, why? Because they're trying to shut down the Holy Spirit's work through Jesus. It's called speaking against the Holy Spirit. And perhaps you've heard about it as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And at this point, Jesus is no longer just giving proverbs, not just saying, well, this, this is a truism. Now he's gone to actually judging, offering judgment. Catch the context. These religious leaders have offered an explanation for Jesus' power of demon exorcism. They've said he's a magician, he's some sort of Beelzebul, Satan. But Jesus says anyone who attributes the work of Satan, pardon me, the work of the Spirit to Satan, commits some blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Such sin is like hardened hearts. And the Pharisees are he's saying, you have closed hearts, you're not paying attention. You are unable to see God's work right in front of you. So to that end, this passage is about the nature of the Pharisees' souls, their hearts. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit then, Jesus says, is an unforgivable sin. Did you see in verse 32? Anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age nor in the one to come. Apparently this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is an unforgivable sin due to the hardness of heart. These Pharisees have an obstinate rejection of Jesus' ministry and the Spirit's work through him. So what can we say? 
hearing and understanding, perceiving, recognizing God's work requires a heart and a soul tuned to spirituality, but an inability to recognize the work of God indicates a diagnosis of an eternal heart disease, a hard heart. What does that mean, Wayne? Well, maybe I could explain it this way. You're making your way this way, and there's something, the work of God within you that says, okay, I need, some people call it intuition, it's a prompting, it's something that says, okay, this direction I'm going is all right, fair, but I should stop doing this, or I should start doing that, one or the other, or maybe both. And if you, if you step into that, you say, okay, I'm going to stop doing that and start doing this, that means you're going to change direction, right? But if you say, I'm not going to do either, what are you doing? You're backing up. I'm not going to follow what the Holy Spirit would be saying to me. Because the reason that becomes unforgivable is because I'm stepping away from the work of God and I'm allowing, if you will, a little callous to grow over my heart, to grow over my soul. Because if I listen to the work of the Holy Spirit, that's going to bring about change on my part. Change is brought by sorrow. I don't like the way things are right now, so I want to do things better in a different way. And thus, repentance can occur. But when we push back from that, when we push back from that inner voice, those heart calluses grow. We can back up, we can deny, and over time, as those calluses grow, we fail to hear God's promptings. And if we fail to hear God's promptings, then we are no longer aware of the need for change, right? Once a heart's callous is too tough for the Spirit's word to be heard, repentance is not viable, not because it's not available, but because there's no longer a perceived need for change. I no longer know that I need to change because I just keep rejecting the Holy Spirit. And without changing, without repentance, the sin remains in place and thus non-forgiven. That's why Jesus says, you Pharisees are a brood of vipers. There's a poison of heart and soul and eternity within you. You're vipers. You're blind to what the Holy Spirit has done right in front of you. Which, if you're like me, I would immediately want to go, well, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be anywhere near that unforgivable sin. I don't want to be anywhere near this business of not recognizing God's work. So in order to help us all of that, I've got some ways today that we can step into, into situations where we will continually hear the Holy Spirit and thus avoid the, if you will, the unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. How do we be certain that we place our lives in a position that says, God, what's for me this day? What's for me this week? Well, first of all, I suggest you examine what's got your attention and who has your ear. In other words, run from people or settings that are poison. When we were kids in Australia, we ran from snakes because we knew they were deadly. Followers of Jesus Christ strive to pay attention to people of righteousness and good spiritual understanding. You want to know, who am I hanging out with? Now, that doesn't mean I have to be afraid of hanging with non-Christians. As a matter of fact, I welcome participation of life with non-believers. As a congregation, we are a missional congregation with this viewpoint of life that, you know, God calls you and me to get out of these church, outside these church walls and to be used by God in the life and in the settings around our community in the places where people are far from God. But the challenge for us as we do that is that we are called by God to be an antidote to the poison while not getting bitten. How are we going to do that? How are we going to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to 
look at what's got my attention, what's got my ear, and pay, pay some focus point there. And in, in light of that, how am I going to determine that I'm being the light of God in the settings I'm in? Well, may I suggest we should focus on developing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And Jesus talked about these good trees. Verse 33, he said, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. See, when you're striving to bring good out of your life or good into other people's lives around you, you're always willing to change because you're willing to say, in the midst of this situation, how do I make it better? Both me and for everyone else. And that in and of itself says, okay, I'm not going to keep doing life the way I'm doing. I'm going to be constantly open to examining my actions, my, my attitudes, and I listen, I change. The work of the Holy Spirit flows in me and through me because the fruit of the Spirit is this. It's love. It's joy. It's peace. It's forbearance. It's kindness. It's goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's a man I know in this regard who I suspect is past the point of hearing the Holy Spirit. Any conversation I have with him is full of anger and mistrust. He has little self-awareness any longer of how just bad he sounds. I don't enjoy being near, being near him. The fruit of his life is not good. And when I was this last couple of weeks working on this message and thinking about this hardness of heart and this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, tragic truth his name immediately came to mind and if this truly is the condition of his heart then frankly I can't help him no one can because he's he has grown the callus so thick and the rejection of Jesus Christ so often and for so long that he no longer hears correction I fear for his future oh he's got a family and a job but there's nothing within him that conversations I have would portray any softness at all towards the things of God. It's thick, it's calloused. It's like the Pharisees. Don't talk to me or think about, about things of spirituality. How do we not do that? Well, as I said, we examine what's got our attention. We focus on developing the fruit of the Spirit. And then we seek some spiritual counsel. Briefly, one way to hear about the Holy Spirit's work in your life would be to Chat perhaps informally with other Christians, ask them to prayerfully help you discern what God, how God would have you live, or maybe formally step into a conversation with one of the pastors on staff. Our pastors have training and experience in helping you figure some of this stuff out, how to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit. Pastor Tim Revis, his primary portfolio is to help our congregation sort out these sorts of matters, and so I'd suggest you give him a call. So you, you say, what's got my attention? How am I going to get the fruit of the Spirit in my life? I'm going to have some spiritual counsel, if need be. And then finally, above all and beyond all else, I'm going to be a person of repentance. See, repentance acknowledges that things are not the way they should be. Someone like the Pharisees says, man, it's all cool. I'm, I'm, I don't have to think about God at all. It's all done. There's no need for change. But repentance says, I've got a problem, there's a sin, there's a change, there's something that needs to do different. And I come to that re realization, and then I don't continue in the same direction. I move in another direction. And a new direction is an indication of the Spirit's voice within you. I, I've had people come to me over, you know, at different times say, 
Pastor Wayne, I'm concerned that I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. In Scripture, Jesus says it's an unforgivable sin. Do you think I might have done that? And my immediate response is, the fact that you're asking would indicate no. You wouldn't ask, you wouldn't have any sort of concern about this if you had committed this sin. Because the people who have committed this sin have no concern for the things of God. More than 20 years ago now, a long time ago. I saw a man die who I believe, I suspect, had rejected the work of the Holy Spirit in his life and had committed this sin. He was in his 80s, the husband of a woman that Leslie and I had a lot to do with and had done a lot of life with her. He lived a hard life um, by his own choosing. No apparent matters, no apparent interest in any matters of Christian spirituality. He and I would chat regularly, and one of the things as we would talk, I would, you know, one of my jobs, if you will, is to ask him about his soul's condition before God. And his response always, Wayne, don't talk to me about those things. I'm not ready for that. I'm I'm not interested. Maybe someday in the future, but not today. In his mid-80s, he ended up in a nursing home, very sick, and it was obvious that death was coming. One day when I was visiting him, I said, his name was Fred. I said, Fred... You've always said there'd be a day coming when you'd um, consider the call of Christ on your life. In the past, you've rejected that call. You've rejected any conversation that I've had with you. You've not shown any interest about these matters. And I was holding his hand, thinking, okay, you know, this is, you're, you're headed into eternity within hours, if not days. And his response to me was, Wayne, I'm too old now, and my brain is so clouded by just pain and by my weakness that I can no longer think about those matters. It's too late. I can't put my thoughts together for that sort of conversation. Even if I wanted to and I don't know if I want to. Offered to pray with him, not interested. I have to say, one of the saddest conversations with a gentleman I've ever had and the funeral in a few days, one of the saddest funerals I've ever conducted. Because as far as I know, he entered eternity without the saving grace of Jesus covering him. Why? Because he rejected the work of the Holy Spirit, calling him to new life, calling him to a grace position before God. And to that end, may I remind you and point out to you how Jesus ends this discussion with the Pharisees. Because he ends the discussion not by saying, okay, this is where we are today. He ends the discussion by talking about because of where we are today, because you Pharisees are rejecting God, here's what's going to happen. I tell you, Everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they've spoken. You Pharisees kept saying it was the devil that was doing this work. That was the evil coming out of you. That was your poison. You're going to have to give an account for the empty words you've spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. Jesus is saying, hey, we've come to the place where how you're acting today has an impact upon eternity. I would have to, I guess, echo that today and say how we live our lives today has an impact upon eternity. So how are we going to manage that? Well, I'd like us to um, turn the page in our service, if you will, and turn the page and have communion together. And in the context of eating and drinking together, Take a moment for everyone in both the East and West auditoriums to prayerfully examine 
we can examine our hearts before God and say, God, how are we living our lives? And, well, let me explain it this way. You, some of you know that Jesus, on, on the night he died, he had his friends gathered around him, and they're eating a meal, and he took a loaf of bread off the table. He broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. I, I'm about to die. They didn't get it at the time. I'm about to die, and this is bread. is like my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Eat this bread. Then they had some more meal. He took a cup off the table. He said, this cup, what's inside here? This is, this is indicative of what's about to happen to me. I'm about to literally die and blood's going to pour out of my side. And that blood, he says, this cup is the new cup of the new covenant. My blood given for you. This, the way in which my blood is going to be poured out of me, like you can pour this cup out, is going to be an indication of how my blood's going to cover your sin. He says, eat this and drink this in remembrance of me. And Paul, the apostle, as he's commenting on the situation, he says, whenever we eat and drink, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. We remember that he died for our sins and that we don't have to live under that cloud of having anything unforgiven. So if you're here today, in an effort to push back from this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, if you can hear that inner prompting within you, you haven't committed that unforgiven sin, there may be other things that you need to bring to God. And so I'd like to pray for all of us. And in this prayer, right before we eat and drink and remember the Lord's death until he comes, why he died, I'd like to pray for those of us who know Christ, that we would continue to hear the work of the Holy Spirit. And then for those here today who do not, you say, oh, man, I'm not walking with him. I'm not stepped into that relationship yet. I'd like to pray for you that before this day is through, you would say, I want to know what it means to have Christ live within me. And then if you can pray that prayer with me, if you pray this prayer with me, I invite you to eat and drink as well. Let's pray together. God, there are dozens upon dozens upon dozens of people here today who um, they've made a commitment to walk with you. And in that commitment, God, is this understanding that we're going to change, we're going to adapt, we're going to be the people that you want us to be and that... um, We're going to listen to the work of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, that Jesus came and died for us so that as the Holy Spirit calls us to repentance, we can respond. Then, Lord, there are perhaps some others here today who have never stepped into that walk with you in Jesus Christ. And there's that inner prompting within them now that says, oh, I need the grace of God to cover me. I'm not going to let that callous between me and God grow. God, May they be bold enough to pray a prayer that simply says, forgive me, God, forgive me. May the work of Christ of the cross be applied to my life. We thank you that as we eat and drink, we remember his death for us in that regard, saying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.